Welcome to Bible study. It's very nice to have you with us again and uh, please stay with us because this will be a very interesting study talking about the end time deceptions. Our panel today, next to me, Stephen. Uh, welcome back, uh, Pastor Stephen. Thanks. Nice to be here, Nick. It's always good to be here. And Lija. Hi, everybody. Good to have you with us, too. Len, again, thank you, Led, for uh, preparing this uh, study. And um, Len is our facilitator today again. And I'll just hand it straight to you, Len. Yes. Hello, listeners. The studies we've been sharing with you since the beginning of April this year have been about preparation for the end time. Today, we're considering the topic end time deceptions. You know, you'd think that with people being better educated these days, that they'd not fall for deceptions. Such, though, is not the case. Plenty of people are fooled by what appears to be genuine but isn't. Take, for example, those being ripped off by scammers who appear genuine and convincing. Unfortunately, all the scammers want is money to further their own evil interests. In 2017, scammers duped the Australian public out of $300 million. Many innocent Australians have been tricked by these unscrupulous scammers, and that's a disaster. But in a spiritual sense, the same thing is happening. Innocent people, including many Christian believers, have been fed false information, error, which they sincerely believe. And today, we'll take a look at some of the main deceptions that are prominent in the world in these current times. Stephen, would you have any idea of who was the world's first scammer? Well, I guess the first scammer in the world was the devil himself, Satan. And he, the Bible says, is the father of lies. And he's a very good scammer. He's very good at taking people down the garden path, as okay. it were. And so how did he deceive Adam and Eve? Well, his deception was quite brutal, really. Eve was explaining to the serpent, who was Satan in disguise, how God had told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he brutally and bluntly said, no, you can, it's okay. I guess it wasn't a great deception, but it was very effective. Yes, it was. And um, he also told a lie right there because when Eve answered him, he did. She said, yes, we can eat of any fruit in the tree of the garden except this one. And if we take of this fruit, we're going to die. That's right. And he said, no, no, you won't die. There's yes. no trouble at all. And when I read this story, I always imagine him sitting there, as it were, in the tree, having a bit of the fruit, and Eve looking and going, well, he's not dying, is he? Not at all. So this happened some thousands of years ago. Lydia, does the Bible record anything about Satan having changed or died since then? No, as much as I know, reading the Bible, I've never found a text to mention that Satan changed or died since Eden. He is still with us on earth. He is trying every moment to deceive us and destroy everybody. Okay, so the same tricks that he got up to back then. Yes. He's still 
doing these days because he hasn't died. He still exists. Yeah. And Revelation talks about the eventual end of Satan, but we're not doing that this um, particular study. So this should make us realize that what's currently happening in the world is very much the same as what happened at the beginning. You've got a verse there you'd like to share with us, Lydia, and then perhaps you can explain what is happening. Yes, in John 8, verse 44, it says that this text addresses to those who don't want to hear God's word. So it says, because you are unable to hear what I say, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, yeah. for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yes. Why would you call him the father of lies? I guess it's because when you come to the Bible story, he is the first one to tell a lie. And so he becomes the father of lies. It's kind of like first in order. It's like when we were kids, somebody would ask you a question, who invented the first steam engine? And they wouldn't speak clearly, and you'd say, what? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's like the electric light bulb. Who was the guy that did that? It was Edison, wasn't it? Yeah. Isn't, isn't he known as the, the father of that? I yes. think he is, yes. Correct. Yes, yes, Nick. I was just going to touch on just two things before we continue. Uh, we mentioned about Satan that he uh, is a murderer. And even if we look at, uh, in the Bible, we can't really see that he struck somebody, you know, to, to kill. Mm. Uh, or at the same time, when the Bible says that in the day you will you'll eat from that fruit, you'll surely die. Now, they didn't die, as we just mentioned here. But what happened to very interesting things? In the moment they touched the forbidden fruit, they became under that curse of losing their life. And Satan, since then, he's killing innocent people by deceiving them. Yeah. Now, that's very important to know because people may come, look in the Bible and say, oh, hang on a second, this is, from, from many Christian views, not existent. Mm. One of my old teachers had an interesting commentary on this particular passage in the scripture and he made the observation the same one that you did Nick that it says in the day that you eat of it you will surely die and his take on it was that when Adam and Eve didn't die when they ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was an act of God's grace so right at the very moment that mm. you see Satan doing his first act of deception to to the humankind you see God doing his first action of grace and ensuring that they didn't die in that moment but gave them a chance to be able to be forgiven. Yeah, I'm thinking that since Adam and Eve bite from that fruit, they realize that they disobeyed God first and they start feeling in themselves weaker and dying every minute. So it means they were touched by sin uh, their strength and their power failed, mm. their wisdom, mostly everything, the entire being start shrinking and dying. Now this question that I'm going to ask has sort of been answered before but I'll ask it specifically because I think it needs some emphasis. 
Stephen, what do you think is Satan's overarching deception? Well, I think it's great. his greatest trick of all is making people think that he doesn't exist. Yeah. The fact that people live life totally, um, what's the word, without any cognizance of the fact that he is around doing his thing, which the Bible says is what is his function, is that is to basically deceive, is the greatest trick of all. If, if I was going to rob you of something and you didn't even know that I existed and I took it, how clever would that be? Yeah, well, to pretend that you're not there. Exactly. Yes, and you've already answered the next bit. I was going to ask you, why is this an important tactic? Because if you're not aware that an enemy is there, you won't be suspecting anything. Is there any um, Bible verse that supports that idea? Yeah, there is. Um, if you go look at Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 11 to 12, this is what it says. It says, Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, of course, there are people who claim to know the Bible, and they deny the existence of Satan, and I would say he's been very successful with that particular group of people. It's interesting to know how many times the word Satan is recorded in the Bible. Have a guess. Do you think it's above or below a hundred? panel? Anybody? 50. 50? Mm. More? 54. 54. <laughs> oh, you get the prize. <laughs> and then, of course, there are other names, lots of other names, like devil, that old serpent, deceiver, liar, father of lies, dragon. There's a whole, whole lot of them. You can look them up online and you'll see there's many, many names being given to Satan. Who do you think Satan is most interested in deceiving? Well, in the past we've talked about the fact that there's a controversy between good and evil, yeah? Between God and Satan. And so the people that um, Satan's going to be most interested in getting, as it were, or deceiving, are those who have made a stand for God. They're the ones he's going to be going to go after. Yes. Because they're the ones who have put themselves, as it were, in opposition to him. So he wants to garner people to his side. And so he's going to be aiming to deceive them. If, if you're not on God's side, then he's not going to be too bothered with you, I suspect. But if you're on God's side, he's going to do things or arrange circumstances to cause difficulties so that you'll be deceived and, and give it away. Yes, Lucy. I think Satan is a very selfish individual because when he deceived the third part of angels in heaven, actually he tried to deceive all of them to take mm -hmm. on his part. Actually, he tried to diffuse the spirit of discontent among the angels to excite the dissatisfaction of concerning the laws that govern heavenly beings. And in the same way, he's doing with us on earth. Stephen, if you were the big boss of a crime gang, who would you get to help you to do your dirty work? I guess I'd be getting the guys who are on my side because I could know I could rely on them. Like, who would they be? Oh, the guys in my gang. Okay. Would there be anybody else who'd be useful to you if you were a big boss of the crime gang? I guess people who were involved in the legal profession or people who were involved in um, the policing, I suppose. You'd yeah. want to get them on side so that if something goes wrong, they'll turn a blind eye, perhaps. Nobody suspects that police would be on the wrong side. No, that's right. 
and when a policeman does get involved with drugs or crime or something of course the rest of society doesn't think much of it mm. so I wonder who Satan might use to help him in his nefarious deeds Lydia? I think Satan uses believable people to deceive others people who has confidence people who has a strength in their world and because he is um, craftier than us he's smarter and more powerful he is trying to to deceive us through these people just a little error he's placing in everything just and through that little error he can try to deceive us now if satan just walked up to or came up probably a better way to say if some satan came up in a visible form to you and I know the artists draw him with horns and a forked tail and all this sort of thing uh, forget about that part would you be more likely to believe him or less I think it depends because usually in his craftiness I think he takes the appearance of a nice person uh, physically and uh, morally uh, he's, I think he in his craftiness also he's talking nicely and very persuading mm. and uh, just to convince you you know uh, and everything he he puts on plate it's very attractive and very uh, deceiving right we're talking about helpers here but no. i mean just mentioning about that uh, we, we said that many christians don't believe in the existence of uh, uh, satan himself and many will say that the uh, evil thing it's in within within us you know and uh, as we decide to do things that we can be evil or can be good but the thing is that as we realize from the bible there are people who don't have a closer relationship with god they have just a form of righteousness mm. but denying its power you know like and these are the people who satan of course will uh, use will because okay you going along my plan and that's why it's important for us I will say to look in the Bible to find in the Bible God's plan with each one of us and don't just believe in whatever we hear around even if it's from church church's pulpit or uh, from whatever is good Christian sources you need to go to the Bible to prove that now this is an important point we're talking about right now because if Satan fronted up, we'd probably be very suspicious. But if somebody perhaps you believe because you trust them and so on, if they present a deception, you're less likely to be aware of it. And Jesus warned about deceptions in, last, in the last times of Earth's history, and that's what we're on about today. Lydia... Could you share with us some Bible verses about Jesus' warning about deceptions in the last days? Uh, yes, we can find in Matthew chapter 24, verse 5, and it says, For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. And uh, a further verse in verse 24, it's written for false Christs, and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. Yeah, and just come back to what Nick was saying. 
I firmly believe that there are lots of false prophets in churches teaching messages which are not from God. And their motivation, of course, it would be that Satan is motivating them. False prophet? What sort of a message does the false prophet present, Ledger? False message. All right. Now, there are four false messages, that is, common beliefs, that have infiltrated people's minds in this modern age. They are, firstly, immortality of the soul. Second, worship on the false Sabbath. Thirdly, that the cosmos and life came into being unplanned and unassisted on its own. And fourthly, and we're going to deal with all these today, the counterfeit trinity. Lydia, how can people avoid being tricked or deceived into these false ideas? Uh, first of all, we have to cling to the word of God because false Christs and false prophets, however, are not the only end-time deception of which we have to be aware. Our enemy in the great controversy has many ploys designed to deceive all whom he can. As Christians, we need to be aware of those ploys and we can do that only through knowing the Bible and obeying what it teaches. We can avoid being deceived if we know the Bible. If you leave it to somebody else to teach you the Bible, then you are very easily led into wrong beliefs. All right, now the first of these four that we're going to deal with today is the immortality of the soul. You know, popular belief is that the body and the soul, and some people use the word spirit there, dwell together in a person, but at death they part and the soul or spirit continues to live on in another place. This notion stems from the Greek philosophical teachings and it is a deception. The notion of when one dies that he or she goes to paradise or hell or purgatory or turns into another life form is contrary to the Bible teaching. So, Stephen, what does the Bible say about what actually happens at death? I remember as a kid learning this text often in the King James Version of the Bible. It says, the soul that sins it shall die. And um, it's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And it says, verse 5, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. So if um, one would assume if you are immortal, you're going to have lots of time under the sun, yeah? Yeah. But if you're going to die, you're not. It all comes to an end. And um, it's interesting in my Bible, it's got as a chapter title for this one, a common destiny for all. So all are going to die. And yeah. to die is to cease to live. And if you're immortal or there is some aspect of you that it's immortal, that obviously doesn't cease to live, yeah? But the Bible says that you cease to live and exist. Now, are there any more texts Yeah, to support that? Yeah, there are. The one that I mentioned before, the soul that sins it shall die. Then Psalm chapter 9 verse 17 says, The wicked go down to the realm of the dead. Death is the place of ceasing to exist. Mm-hmm. All the nations that forget God. Is there another one? So Psalm 146 verse 4 says, When their spirit departs, 
they return to the ground, on that very day their plans come to nothing. Yes. Some other versions say their thoughts perish. Yes. Yes, Nick. I believe uh, this is the trick because uh, lots of people will believe in the immortal soul and that's the soul, the spirit, it's a force, it's not uh, a being, you know, like, uh, and that's why people say, now the spirit cannot die, you know, we will go in the dirt like the body, you know, the flesh, mm. but the spirit will live, will go whatever, uh, you know, for some people will believe that if it's not really good, will go in the purgatory, you know, to, to make it come good. But one thing I would like to say, even common sense, even in our languages, you know, I remember as I was growing up as a kid, people used to say, how many souls are living in this town or in this mm -hmm. village, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I was a bit confused when I, later on I start to come across these uh, explanations that the soul is an immortal soul. I thought, I mean, I know that live 500 souls, which I can see them every day, you know, and I can come in contact with them. And just an example, and in the Bible, if we'll go, uh, probably this is a separate uh, Bible study, you know, to just to, to explain the, the nature of the person, yes. Uh, but in our study, I will say, in regard to the immortal soul, people believe in that, and Satan is very good on deceiving people in this way, because we are people who love our beloved ones and how good it is to know that even if they die actually they are in a better place you know mm. their soul is somewhere in a green pasture <laughs> some people will bring some texts up and that it's a convenience thing for us and satan is using our weaknesses to promote his deceptions now there are some uh, texts in the bible which do not agree with this idea that the soul is immortal, that when a person dies, their spirit lives on and on. When are the righteous dead raised to life? Well, the Bible tells us that the righteous dead are raised to life when Jesus returns in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Adding on to that, when will God's people be given immortality? We need a verse here for our listeners to recognize that immortality is not inherent. That's right. Well, that it be given. I'm busting on this one. First Corinthians chapter 15 is the key passage. If you look over there, First Corinthians chapter 15, um, verses uh, 51 to 54, it tells us that immortality is something that God gives to us um, when he resurrects us to life, to life immortal, we're inclined to say. So verse 51 says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. And the, when the Bible talks about sleep, it means death, yes? Yes. Lying death. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. When he says we, he means those who are alive, yeah? Yes. When Jesus comes back. But this is the key verse. For the perishable, that's things that come to an end, yeah? must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal, that's someone who's subject to death, with immortality, not being subject to death, then the saying that is written will, that's future tense, 
come to true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And when you compare 1 Corinthians 15 there with 1 Thessalonians 4, you recognize you're talking about the same event, and that's when Jesus comes back yeah. to redeem his own, to take his own, both those who have died and those who are alive, to be with him forever. And it's at that point of time where human beings, righteous human beings, God's people, will be given immortality. That's right. Not before then. That's exactly right. Now, have you ever heard about NDEs, listeners? Yes. You know what an NDE is? NDE uh, stands for the scientific name of near-death experience. But, of course, another manifestation of one of the two great errors, this near-death experience, as long as anyone believes that at death the soul goes on living in one form or another, that person is wide open to most occult or spiritualistic deceptions. Deceptions that can easily promote the idea either openly or by implication that you don't need Jesus. In fact, most of the people who have had near-death experience have said that the spiritual beings whom they met or even their dead relatives gave them comforting words about love, peace and goodness, but nothing about salvation in Christ, nothing about sin and nothing about judgment to yeah, come. That's interesting. One would think that while supposedly getting a taste of the Christian afterlife, they should have gotten a taste of the most basic Christian teachings as, as well. Yet often, what they're told sounds much like New Age dogma, which could explain why m many of these people come away less inclined toward Christianity than uh, they were before having died. Okay. Thank you, Lydia. Now, <clears throat> we're just about um, to move on to another deception here. But, Stephen, in a nutshell, could you please summarize the teaching about immortality of the soul? I guess I'd rather talk about the opposite teaching, but essentially it means that the immortality of the soul means that someone has latent within them something that never dies. Whereas the Bible teaches that our immortality is conditional on our connection with God. It teaches it right back at the very beginning of the Bible in the story of the Garden of Eden teaches it quite pointedly there in 1 Corinthians 15 in that passage that we read before that our immortality is something that God gives, not something that we have that's latent to ourselves. Yeah. Alright, well now we're moving on to another deception. It's about the false Sabbath. Stephen, which day of the week did God proclaim as the holy day, the Sabbath? The and when oh, did he proclaim? Well, right back at the beginning. Again, so often when we talk about um, Bible teachings, we can come right back to the beginning of the Bible and we find their genesis. Oh, yeah, no pun intended, their genesis in there. And so when you go to the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3, it says, And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because, it on, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So it's the seventh day of the week that God has set aside as a particular day. And if you read through the whole chapter of Genesis 1 before you come to that part of Genesis 2, it makes it very clear that the thrust of the whole creative story pushes us down to the, the central importance of the Sabbath. Yeah. Okay. Now, of course, many people have this argument to present. They say that the 
commandments, including the Seventh-day Sabbath, was only given to the Jews. What would you have to say about that, Lydia? Actually, among many texts in the Bible, there is one which I would like to mention in Mark chapter 2, verse 27. And it mentions like this, Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So doesn't so the Bible say the Sabbath was given to the Jews? No. Uh, actually, from this text, we can understand that the Sabbath was given to man, to all the people, not exclusively. It was given to the, actually to the whole of, of mankind, including the Jews. So to the whole people. So God wanted to have a relationship, a family together. So the Sabbath was given to all mankind. Okay. Now and Stephen Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Correct. Yes. Yes. So if he's the Lord of the Sabbath and he's we'll your Lord, am oh, I jumping the gun? Sorry, yes. but <laughs> if I can finish, if he's your Lord and my Lord, then what is important to him is going to be important to us. Yeah? Of course. And if you go back to the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments, it says that the Sabbath was something for not just the Jewish family, but for the stranger who was within the gate. So even in the Ten Commandments, there is an, there is an indication that the Sabbath is more broad than just for Jewish people. Yes, Nick. I'd like to also add that um, many Christians will say, you know, Sabbath means uh, to rest, you know, in God. I mean, it doesn't matter when, uh, which day and uh, how you do it, as long as you are connected with God and rest in the Lord. How can we unveil a little bit this concept in which so many people are trapped and deceived? Well, it's like birthdays. My birthday which happens to be tomorrow, but um, if people say, well, you know, we'll celebrate your birthday and we can celebrate it any day. Well, I don't think that's giving any honour to me on my birthday and I don't think it's giving any honour to God when we pick and choose our own day. Well, it just seems to me that if God set aside a seventh day, why not just do it his way? Do you know what I mean? Like, sure. You can, have, you can rest and spend time with God on every day of the week or any day of the week, but why not do it on the day that he asks? If we're going to be followers after God, why not do what he asks us to do? Isn't that the whole idea of following someone? If, if, if I was your teacher and I said to you, can you please go write something on the board now? And you said, look, yeah, sure, I'll write it on the board for you, but I just want to do this and this and this and this and this and then I'll do it. Do you think I'd be very impressed with you? Not at all. I don't think so. And so I think that if God says to us, we'd like you to do it this way, why not do it his way? Yeah, but I'm thinking, did God need rest after he created the whole world in six days? Do you think he already was exhausted? No. No, not really. He wanted to have a, a day when people, that his creature, to worship him, to to, to stop from all the worries of this world and have a time with God, a time when uh, to reflect on God's love and on God's creation that he did for his people. Uh, we may come across even to read the fourth commandment to, to see uh, how that, uh, you know, describes God. It's important that God rested after his creation because God is the creator the sustainer of all things. And in the fourth commandment, we'll, um, we'll find out that there is like the name of God, you know, the title and the territory 
of God. And because of the end of creation, God rested and uh, gave this time to us to be with him and enjoy this creation. I believe, I mean, Satan is trying to counterfeit this because he doesn't want even us to know that God is the creator and the sustainer of all things. Yeah, which kind of bleeds, bleeds us into our next thing that, that I'm sure Lynn's going to want to talk about. But if we get back to Genesis 2 verse 7, you see that God actually makes the seventh day holy because he does something different to what he was doing before. Yeah. So on, in the six days of the creation story, God is busy making and creating and however he does that. Yeah, On the seventh day, he's not. He rests. And in doing something different from what he did before, he makes the day holy because holy holiness has the idea of being separate and being different. Yeah. yeah. Now, I was given a book once which said at Calvary when Jesus was nailed to the cross that the law, the Ten Commandments, was nailed to the cross too. Then in this book it said later on nine of those Ten Commandments were reinstated. Now Stephen, I think you've read your Bible right through from cover to cover. Where in the Bible can you find the authorization to change the worship day from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. Well, I don't think there's anywhere. I've looked pretty carefully, and there's nowhere in the Bible where it says that the Sabbath is no longer of value. And why would there be? If it's something that God instituted at the, in the creation process, why would it suddenly not be of value? It doesn't make any logical sense it to me. It doesn't. Now, I've um, heard many people say that Sunday is the Lord's day. Well, is it the Lord's Day? What does the Bible say? There are two verses, and I, I wonder if you can find these, Stephen, in Mark 2.28 and Isaiah 58.13, which identifies the Lord's Day. Now, a lot of our friends, they say that Sunday, the first day of the week, is the Lord's Day because Jesus rose from the dead. So what does the Bible say? Well, Mark 2:28. let's start with verse 27, says, Then he said to them, this is Jesus, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Lydia read this before. So the Son of Man, verse 28, is Lord even of the Sabbath. So if he is Lord of the Sabbath, you could easily infer from that that the Lord's day is the Sabbath day. Sabbath. Does that make sense? Mm, well, I think it's perfectly logical. What about in Isaiah 58:13, Stephen? Have you got that one? I will in a jiffy. Okay. Isaiah 58 verse 13 says, If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honourable, and if you honour it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, verse 14, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Yes, and he is the Lord speaking. And he spoke about my holy day. Which right. day was identified as his holy day? The Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. And the we know from day Sabbath. exactly that's from Genesis 2 tells us it's a seventh day. Yes. Otherwise, God's not very consistent. One little thing before you speak, Nick. You would have thought that with Jesus teaching the way to eternal life and things that were going to happen after he um, 
he went back to heaven, that if the Sabbath was going to be changed or done away with, he would have had something to say about it. But do you know what he said about it? Nothing. Except no that, change. Except that he taught us how to keep it. Yes. If you read carefully through the Gospels, you'll find that there are seven Sabbath miracles recorded. And in those Sabbath miracles, Jesus and the, the Gospel writers, they explain what is required as far as Sabbath keeping goes, what, what Jesus expects. He talks about, um, is it lawful to do good or to do evil, to mm -hmm. save life or to kill? Yeah. Jesus doesn't say, let's not keep the Sabbath. He says, this is how I want you to keep the Sabbath as one of my followers. Yeah. Yes, Nick. I was just going to say why then uh, Satan is so keen on uh, uh, working about uh, around this uh, subject of the Sabbath, you know, and to deceive so many people. Because, first of all, as we look in the Bible, we can't find anywhere in the Bible to support that idea that the Sabbath was changed. But the majority of Christians today, they actually worship God on a different day, yeah. which is the false Sabbath. Now, why? Because it's in interesting to know that people who like to follow something which they are, they have ownership, if you like. When this was changed, and uh, we know who did this, you know, uh, back uh, in, uh, in uh, early history of Christianity, you know, uh, they come with a brilliant idea, as you just mentioned, Len, to do this in favor of our Lord, to celebrate our Jesus Christ resurrection. And they will say, we'll do this for that reason. Now, if the Bible doesn't support that, as uh, we mentioned. What I find interesting is when we study the Sabbath, we find that there are two key themes that um, are at its core. And that's the theme that God is the creator and that God is the redeemer. Yes. So if those two ideas are key, and you can see it in Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus chapter 20, if you bother to look at the Ten Commandments there, because um, the two versions of the Fourth Commandment have different rationalizations for keeping them. In Deuteronomy 5, it's because of God's saving capacity. In Exodus 20, it's because God is the creator. That means that those two ideas are fundamental to what Sabbath is all about. And so Sabbath becomes the day when we celebrate God as creator and God as redeemer and savior. We don't need a different day. No. It's already there in black and white, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So this second deception is that the Lord's day, the day when people should worship, is on the first day of the week, Sunday, whereas the Bible actually says the Lord's day is not then. The Lord's day is on the seventh day of week, of the week, the Sabbath. Moving on, we're going to be talking about the self-forming earth and life as being another deception. Now, Ledger, how many millions of years did it take for the earth to form? <laughs> we can hear around uh, us um, many kinds of answers like uh, thousands and millions of years and so on, but if we go to the Bible to find the right answer, we can find uh, in Exodus chapter 20 verse 11 which is the last part of the fourth commandment and it says for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them but he rested on the seventh day therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy in uh, Genesis chapter 2 verse 2 
It says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. So you're not, um, I mean, you're showing from the Bible that it wasn't millions of years. No, it was only six days. Okay. All right, Stephen, what did Jesus have to say about this subject? Jesus believed in evolution. Uh, no, he didn't believe in evolution, not at all. Um, over in Mark, um, he makes the following observations. Mark chapter 10 and verse 6 says, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So in, in speaking of the creation of human beings, it says that God made them. Yes. They didn't come about because they managed to somehow crawl out of some primordial slime. It says that God made them. Just like you or I might make a model, God made um, men. And complete. Complete, yes. yes. And a few pages over it has something to say about that too, doesn't it? It, it does. In Mark chapter 13 and verse 19, because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world. So it's talking about the end of time and it says it's going to be very difficult. There's going to be a lot of distress. But then it con notice in, in the context of talking about it, it says that God created the world. All right. So Jesus never believed in evolution. He never taught that. No, he talked in a creation. Yes. A specific creation. And if you read the creation story, you find that God gets very personally involved in that process. I had a friend once who um, said, look, I don't believe that Old, Old Testament stuff. I don't believe creation. I don't believe about Noah's Ark. They are just stories. But he did say, I do believe in what Jesus did and who he was. Well, unfortunately, Jesus believed in creation. And so the argument that this friend of mine presented was not much good. Yes, Ledger, you want to say something? Yes, there? I want to mention two points, at least, uh, in regard to biblical account of creation. First of all, everything, I mean, the creation, God's creation was planned and calculated. Nothing was random or arbitrary or by chance. Uh, so scripture leaves no room whatsoever for chance in the process of creation. And second, the text in the Bible reveals unambiguously that each creature was made after its own kind that is each one was made separately and distinctly from the others so the bible doesn't teach anything about a common natural ancestry for a life on earth so as i said nothing was random in the act of creation and there was no common natural ancestry for all species so along comes the Darwinian evolution, which in its various forms teaches two things, randomness and the common natural ancestry for all species. Well, evolution claims, of course, that the universe and what's in it, yep. including life, self-formed from nothing. Creation, however, teaches that God was the creator and that by his power and design, both matter and life came into being. For example, in book of John, the Gospel of John, first chapter, the Bible says, through him, this is God the Word, all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. Even though we just mentioned uh, Charles uh, Darwin uh, and, you know, the father of uh, uh, evolution uh, versus creation, 
even himself recognized there is something beyond all of this at some point. What I'm trying to say is that evolution itself, when you really search around it, cannot sustain its theory as much as now people are trying to find another way of theistic evolution, which is even worse, I will say, than, uh, than evolution which Charles Darwin promoted, developed. I guess I'm not a scientist, but the problem I have with theistic evolution is that God supervises a process that isn't good. Things die in order that things can live. And the Bible says that when God finished his creation, he looked at it and said, it's all good. It's all very good. So I, I don't know how you can combine those two ideas together. I'm, I guess I would say simply that I'm not clever enough to be able to put those two things together. Yeah. They don't sit comfortably. They don't sit well. Okay. And that's, but that was a very good point, actually, because we see now that the result of uh, sin is the degradation of everything which was very good. Mm. And uh, we cannot just excuse through the um, evolutionist theory, you know, that uh, things are happening uh, and, um, you know... They're supposed to get better. The space species, you know, just comes against each other because they just develop or whatever they needs now because there is a result of an outside influence, which is the sin who come among us. Now, Ledger... We don't want to go into the debate too much because I think the answer is quite clear. But why do you think the theory of evolution is so well accepted? I think, first of all, that it's accepted in the minds of those who don't believe God because it removes God out of people's minds and thus any accountability of him. And it's Satan's deception to remove God from people's minds. Yeah. It's easier. Now, I often, often hear people talk about evolution as science. What do you say about that, Ledger? Actually, it's not science. It's a theory. It's a historical theory yeah. over the years. It's not science. It takes you back to that first discussion that we had when you asked the question, you know, um, about, about Satan, what's, what's his function. I forget exactly how you phrased the question then, but you talked about the idea that we, we conclude that Satan was a deceiver and his greatest deception is that he doesn't exist, yeah? Yeah. So if, if Satan can get us to believe that he doesn't exist, and then if he can replace the idea that God is the creator, therefore God doesn't exist, then we're all on our own, and we're all much more easily available to him. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Now, you mentioned something about theistic evolution, but I have a problem with theistic evolution, and you might have some comments about this, Ledger. Can a person claim to be a Bible-believing Christian, and yet believe in evolution no definitely no because these two beliefs are totally incom incompatible although theistic evolution claims that God set the ball rolling and evolution took place from then on so no right now that's not possible this idea was made pretty popular by dr. Paul Davies who actually worked in the Adelaide University I think his book was called the mind of God oh. he said God made stuff set it not perfect, and then allowed time and change to develop what we have today. Well, the Bible doesn't support that idea, just as you were mentioning before. When God made the earth, including human beings, he made them complete. And he said they were very good. Yes. A, a, a process means hopefully at the end of the process it's very good, but in the process of evolution things have to die and has to be 
and death, of course, you know, is as a result of sin. So how would God be able to um, be involved in that process? How could he supervene that? I don't know how that could be. No. And probably one, one other aspect is that even though sin created so much chaos, you know, uh, God created everything good. There was so much lost in, but God is going to recreate, if you like, in us and what we lost, actually. And how important is that? Because if you look to the theistic evolution, the degradation of the species, you know, mm. it's just going worse and worse. You, you never find an improvement, actually, in the uh, evolution process. Yeah. But God has a solution. And that's the thing which we would like to just emphasize today, that we need to hang on God's side, because then we'll be vindicated. Okay. We've got to move on to well, the fourth and last deception we're going to deal with today is about the counterfeit trinity. Now, for those of you not sure, a trinity is three. Three acting as one. A trio singing a song, there are three. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen, who is the true trinity? Well, it's God, isn't it? So it's the Father, God the Father, the Son, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yes, and you'll read about that in Matthew 28, verse 19. I can do that. You want to do that? Yeah, I'll be very happy to do that. Matthew 28 and verse 19 is around the Great Gospel Commission. Mm-hmm. And it says here, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And the commission goes on in verse 20. Right. So, what does God, the Trinity, deserve? He deserves us to worship him. Worship, yes. Now, you can see that this would be a very interesting thing for Satan to make a deception on. And we have some evidence of what has happened. There is a false Trinity. So, who is the false Trinity? Well, Revelation chapter 13, it outlines the false trinity. Um, If I can just skip over there now. In verses uh, 1 and 2, it says, And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but it had the feet of those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So a beast represents a power. Yes. Now, going on from there, that's the first power, this one coming from the sea. And don't forget the dragon who gave the beast no, his... the dragon, of course, represents Satan. That's yep. uh, identified in Revelation 12. Then it talks about another beast, another power. It says, Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. So you've got the dragon who gives the first beast his throne and his authority and his power, and you've got the second beast that turns up who has all the same authority as the first beast. Is that a reasonable okay. summation? So there yes, is a before sea you, beast before and you the speak, land beast. Before you speak, yeah, that's the land beast. Mm-hmm. But then in Revelation 13, It talks about something else which is part of this false or this counterfeit trinity in verses 14 and 15. Can we read those? Yes, please. Yep. Verse 14 says, 
because of the sins he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was, who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. Okay, so we have the beast from the sea, yep. the beast from the land, and then the image to the beast. Now, many Bible scholars have wondered about this, and the most feasible interpretation is that the beast from the sea is... Roman church. All right, the Roman church. The beast from the land is... USA. The United States of America. And the image to the beast is... Protestant America. Protestant America. Now, this sounds totally weird, but um, listeners, you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to know that there is a lessening of the gap between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, and it's getting closer and closer every day. Worship is demanded. Uh, yes, Nick, before yeah, we go on. I, I just want to say... Uh, in regard to this, even few hundred years back, if we look in the time of Reformation, you know, those people understood so well these passages in Revelation. And, uh, um, for example, many times when I'm going uh, to Europe, you know, I'm, I'm passing through Nuremberg, you know, and I'm visiting the town hall there. And around the town hall, there are all images depicted from Revelation, you know. And you'll see there exactly what the Bible describes, you know, all those uh, symbolic animals and dragons and powers and so on. What's interesting is that after a period of time, for example, if we'll say like 150 years or even close to 100 years ago, that the Protestant America and the Roman uh, Church will uh, communicate, will have something in common, uh, and even though the Protestant world will come together to, to work as one, you will say you are insane. That wouldn't happen. Yeah. Because yeah. even America itself was formed to protest, to reject the Roman teachings because it was persecuted. But they're coming now together as one and talking about the Trinity to form this power because I would like to, to say another thing about the Trinity in, in God. Many people will have problems to say God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But it's interesting enough that the Bible is clear that say that all these three personality, if you like, work as one, hmm. which is God. Which is important yeah. that to know when, when you talk about that, God is one. Because yeah. people yeah. will say, oh, you are uh, polytheistic, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, having so many gods. No, that's not true. It's only one God. But the God is, that God is formed uh, from these three personality, which we can call all of them God, you know. The Bible teaches that we should worship God. But um, talking about this false or this counterfeit trinity, Lydia, in Revelation thirteen sixteen, there's something there about worshipping this false trinity. Would you like to read that verse and then tell us what is the key word about the worship? Yes, in Revelation 13, verse 16, it says, He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, 
so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark. So it means people would worship the false trinity by force. Yes. Now when you are forced to worship, it's not much of worship, is it? It's just no. like if somebody forces you to love them, if that's possible. The great irony is that if this <laughs> is the deception, the deception creates a deception of worship. So pretend worship, whereas God calls for free worship, yes. worship that comes from the heart. All right. Now, Stephen, you alluded to this a little bit before. Who's behind the formation of this false trinity, the, uh, if you like, the union between the Roman Church, United States of America, and Protestant America? Well, the false trinity is set up in counter to the true trinity. Yes. So who's against the true trinity? Yeah. That's the real answer to the question, isn't it? And? It's Satan. Yes. And he's described in uh, Revelation 12 and Revelation 13 as, a dragon. as the dragon. Well, it's not all bad news. There's some good news. We know Satan is in the business of deceiving people, true-hearted people, honest people, people who, who really want to worship God but get caught up in these deceptions. How does anyone overcome this powerful being on this earth causing these deceptions that is Satan? Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11 gives the answer. And it says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Verse 12 goes on and says, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Okay, so victory to be able to overcome these deceptions is in following the Lamb, yes. Jesus Christ. It's his blood that gives us victory. The fact yeah. that he died for you and for me yeah. guarantees that we have a future. And then it says, and by the word of their testimony, and that's testimony about the lamb. That's yeah. the key. The good now, news of who Jesus is. Earlier in today's program, we highlighted the fact that the way to avoid being caught up with these deceptions is to know what the word of God really says. And we've shared some of these things with you today. Each of those issues is a study on its own, and we're trying to do four or five in the one go. Today we've shared with you these four deceptions that are alive and well in our society. These deceptions, like many others, are promoted by and originate from Satan, the devil, who wants to corrupt God's truth and blind people to the proper knowledge of God. Finding truth can only be had by studying for yourself what the Bible really has to say. And I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope this session has been a blessing to you. And until next time, may God richly bless you. And I'd like to thank you, the panel, for uh, putting such a hard work into this study we may just scratch the surface for all these subjects as uh, Len uh, just mentioned but we'd like to uh, encourage you and to invite you to come along and study more if you like. We are uh, organizing some Bible studies uh, Secrets of Prophecy for example uh, and if you like to be part of that and uh, search more in depth about all these subjects, please don't be shy and just contact us through the numbers which we provide 
or just visit some of our uh, groups and churches uh, around the country. Even here in Adelaide, a couple of places where you can come and visit us. And until then, please don't forget, it's important to keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Just if I could put a little promo in here, um, if you'd like to join a group Bible study rather than just sitting and listening on the radio, then every Saturday morning at Adventist churches all over the country, you can join in with them and they have one, usually starting around about 9.30 on a Saturday morning, although it'll be worthwhile to check out the times because some churches do have different times. Here in Adelaide, there are a number of churches where you could attend, but if I could just point out three of them. Down in the south of Adelaide, there's a, ch- a larger church called Morfitt Vale on Pimpala Road, and they start at 9.30 in the morning. In the city, in the CBD on Angus Street, there is Adelaide City Church, and they also start at 9.30 in the morning. And perhaps towards the north in Paravista, they start at 10, but their Bible discussion starts around about half past 11. And you'd be welcome to join and sort of put some faces to the discussion. Very glad to see you as you come along.